But I want to read from a, a psalm, first of all. It's Psalm chapter 8. I think it'll be on your screen. We're, we're going to read through this psalm, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the working title of my message is Eternity in Our Hearts and it's a part of our Summer of Soul series. You know, all of us, if, we're, if we really think about it, and it's true for all human beings since time immemorial, we have gazed with wonder into the sky. Think about that. Just above us, right now, this morning, within sight, yet out of reach, is this unfathomable expanse. In truth, we live in it at the level of what we call the Earth's atmosphere. Here in Florida, we live at sea level, but we could climb Mount Everest and get up to about 29,000 feet, we're still in the atmosphere. It rises above our heads, directly above our heads, and goes off into eternity. If we could perch on the surface of the moon and look back at Earth, and we could see the Earth in its spherical shape, you could see this expanse and all of its unreachable and interminable glory going in every direction. For us, it's up but if we were in Australia, it would be up as well, going in every direction, this universe. I looked it up this morning just because I was curious. What is the antipode? If you don't know what that word means, it means if we could drill through the earth, directly through the center of the earth, and come out on the other side, where would we show up here in the state of Florida? It's actually on the Cocoa Islands in the Pacific Ocean, just northwest of Australia, off the coast of Indonesia. I don't just a little tidbit, it means nothing about our message. But the people on Cocoa Island are looking up into eternity just like we are. For thousands of years we've pondered the heavens. The psalm, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look into the heavens, it's so near we breathe its air and yet it's so inaccessible that it is beyond comprehension. The night sky in particular inspires with it all because we can see the stars and the planets and we can see constellations and all this wondrous stuff. It beguiles us with questions about life and meaning and truth. We have this unquenchable impulse to know more about the universe and God who made it all. We created flying machines, kind of satisfy our curiosity. Now, the last hundred years, since the early 1900s, when Orville and Wilbur Wright made the first successful controlled flight, now we take airplanes for, for granted. 
They make travel easier and faster. We have all kinds of personal aircraft, parasails, flying wingsuits, ultralightsers, even a, an organization called Experimental Aircraft Association. I used to be a member of them when I was first getting flying lessons and becoming a pilot many years ago. It's based in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It has over 1,000 chapters and 200,000 members. We've got pilots here in this building right today. Raise your hand if you're a pilot. Look at this, one, two, three. We got pilots here today. How many flight attendants do we have? Any flight attendants? How many of you went to see the Blue Angels yesterday? <laughs> Look at this, everybody. We have all this passion and interest and creativity about getting into the sky. And yet, even with all that we've accomplished, we're still not quite satisfied. It hasn't answered all of our questions. Our soul just still wonders. We're tied to the ground. We crave the unknown, we feel the, yet we feel the limits of our being deeply. If we could fly all the way to the end of the universe, we would. We haven't been there and it's kind of scary, but we want to go. William Shakespeare famously said, my soul is in the sky. <laughs> we know eternity is real. We know our souls were made for it. We are insatiably curious about it. If we could get to the so-called end of the universe, and we actually got there, and at the end of the universe, we found this impassable barrier there, you know what our first question would be? What's on the other th side of this thing? We somehow intuitively know that eternity is real. Before we harnessed the physics of flight, we imagined ourselves soaring through the clouds among the stars. Even today, we wish we could abandon the restrictions of metal and motors and mechanics and just soar with our arms spread wide. Singer-songwriter Dave Matthews captured this in a song that he wrote called You and Me. Here's part of the lyrics. You and I, we're not tied to the ground, not falling, but rising like rolling around, eyes closed above the rooftops, eyes closed, we're going to spin through the stars, our arms wide as the sky, we're going to ride the blue all the way to the end of the world, to the end of the world, and oh, when our kids are old enough, we're going to teach them to fly. Right now, the heavens, right now, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We have that on display right now above our heads, and yet we can't comprehend it. Not really. We can't really fly either. Oh, we buzz around in the clouds with airplanes, and jets go up to 30 or 40,000 feet. Few brave souls have climbed into heavy machines and filled with explosive fuel and blasted into outer space, overcoming the limits of gravity and going into orbit around the Earth. We made some pretty impressive progress. I just recently finished a book about Apollo 8, the Apollo missions of the 1960s, with a determination by President John F. Kennedy to go to the moon before the end of the decade. The Apollo program was, was committed to this idea and Apollo 8 was the first 
lunar module to actually go with three men aboard and leave the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's orbit. It took them, they had to blast up to 24,000 miles per hour to get out of Earth's orbit and make their way to the moon. That was a, a feat by itself. Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders reached this blinding speed, escaped the, the Earth's grip, and went to the moon on this dangerous trajectory that had never been done before. The, the mathematics, figure that out, was arduous and scary for even the most critical minds alive at that time. On the day that they were circling the moon, they did do it successfully. They did not land on Apollo 8, but they circled the moon for about a full day. Multiple, I think every 90 minutes or something like that, they went around the moon. They were trying to decide, because this part of the experience of their orbit was going to be broadcast back to the Earth on live television. And they were talking among themselves, these three men, even prior to the launch, what are we going to say to the world when, we're, when we go live in a, air, in a spacecraft orbiting the moon. They, they talked for weeks among themselves and they asked, just among themselves, the three astronauts, they asked a couple of friends because they couldn't come up with anything. They talked about, the fact, the fact is, this actual experience was happening during the month of December because that was the only time when the moon was lined up right with the Earth that they could make the journey uh, in the proper distances. And they, by a, another fluke of physics, they were actually going to be orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve. There's a whole story about how scary that was. Like, you know, if, if, we, if we died, it would ruin Christmas for everybody. I mean, they were actually talking about this. So they were thought, should we tell a Christmas story? Should we talk about Santa Claus? No, that's too silly. Should we sing Jingle Bells? No, that's even sillier. This is the kind of stuff was going on. They asked a couple of friends just quietly prior to the launch to help them think about it, and nobody could come up with the right words. Finally, with only 24 hours left, a man named Joe Layton, who had been trying to come up with something to advise the astronauts of what to say, his wife made a suggestion. Her idea was forwarded to Frank Borman, who was the captain, and Bor Borman showed it to his two crewmates, and they all agreed. At 8.30 p.m. Houston time on Christmas Eve, as Apollo 8 spacecraft was orbiting the moon, the live broadcast began on CBS. They had to interrupt the Doris Day show to begin, and, and newscaster Walter Cronkite, for you older folks who remember him, <coughs> made the introductions and then turned the broadcast over to Frank Borman. And this is what he said. This is Apollo 8 coming to you live from the moon. The astronauts spent the next few minutes sharing deep details about their experience of orbiting the moon and what the moonscape landscape looked like and some of the details of the craft. And then, as the television time was winding down, um, Anders said, he came on and he said, we are now approaching the lunar sunrise and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of the Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. They had really talked about this and wondered what to do. And one of the things that Borman says, he said, I don't think we ought to screw around with this. We ought to do it right because there will be more people listening to this than ever listened to any other single person in history. So they really worked at what they should say. 
No one at Mission Control knew what the astronauts would say. Watching on their televisions at home, the astronauts' wives and children were leaning in, ready to listen, because they too did not know what the astronauts would say. And while the moon began to move across the television screens, Anders began. In the beginning, God created the heavens. I can't say this. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was out form, without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And as the whole world listened, these three crewmen, by turns, taking turn, read from the Bible's account of creation, for chapter 1 in Genesis, verses 1 through 10. Isn't that amazing? In the last century, we have dug deep and we've learned about our cosmos and the solar system and the Milky Way galaxy and the known universe and beyond. We've deciphered the mechanics of the stars, E equals MC squared. We know more about the universe than anyone in history. Satellites have now reached the other planets into the far reaches of our solar systems. Telescopes now enable us to look back in time and explore through the miracle of light that traveled here, the radiance of stars a million light years away. Somehow we know we've been made for all of this. Not, not the physical universe so much, but the eternity that it represents. God in his endless wisdom put eternity in our hearts. When God first made man in Genesis chapter two, right after this account that the astronauts read, it says this in verse seven, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. This unique breathing in by God, this very breath of God that gave us life is what made us uniquely human and the most unique attribute of humanity is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And that attribute is that we are eternal in our nature. God graciously put the sky above our heads, eternity on display, the sun, the moon, the stars as a poignant reminder of what we are made for. For now, it's unreachable, it's unfathomable, it's foreboding, it's mysteriously beckons to us. The heavens really do declare the glory of God. And this is not just unique to Genesis, this is throughout the Bible narrative. God, over and over, when, he, when he's talking to his people, he's associating the heavens with his eternal providence, promises, his covenants, his glory. Genesis 1-1, which we've all read already. In Genesis 6 through 9, Noah, the incredible story of the Genesis flood, the many years of building the ark to save this family, to save the world, to save the human race from disaster because of the evil that had come on the world. A full year of floating around in this massive floating vessel that Noah had made. And as the floodwaters were drying up and God told Noah to finally leave the ark and step out on dry land, God made a promise to Noah and his wife and his, and his sons and their wives. What was that promise that he made? He put a sign in the sky. 
as a reminder of this covenant that I will never again. If you read the account in Genesis 6 through 9, he says that never again, like six times, never again will I ever do this. Never again. This is an everlasting covenant that I will never again flood the earth. He put the sign of the rainbow in the sky. And now we still have that promise in the sky. Every time there's this unique confluence of physics, clouds, sun, and rain, the sign of, the, of the God's promise is there for us to see. A few chapters later, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 12, just a couple chapters after the flood, God speaks to Noah and tells him to leave his homeland, take his family, leave Haran, and move to this place where I will show you. He didn't even tell him where it was. And, he, and, and Abraham left with his family by faith. He went out on this very risky journey, and he's... It's a, if you read the account, it's wars and danger and, and division and all kinds of troubles on this journey. Abraham had no children. Him and his wife, Sarah, were old. And God told him, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. And through your family, all nations of the world will be blessed. And they didn't have one son, one kid. Three chapters later, the Lord appears to Abram again, and it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward, your very great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And then God brought Abram outside. <laughs> brought him outside where the sky is. And he said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham, to his credit, believed God's word, it says, and God accounted to him as for righteousness. This became the very basis of the Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is and of our faith. Today we see God's glory. God speaks to us sometimes. We sense his presence, we hear his voice in that quiet, still way that he speaks, and yet we still recognize we're limited. We could see the stars, we can, but we can't really comprehend them. We don't have the, the knowledge or the expertise. Even if we had the machines to get us there, we'd never survive the trip. So often we are preoccupied with our, our limits. Abram dealt with this. You know, I don't have any children. My wife is 99 years old, you know, or 90 years old, and I'm 99. We are, we are preoccupied with how small and insignificant we are. But then God's promises come to us in these things like the rainbow and the things that look to the stars of heaven, these words from God in the, in the Old Testament. This is the essence of Christianity, this disparity between the greatness of God and his promises and our limits as human beings. God put eternity in our hearts. He has interacted us, with us through history, through his covenants, his promises, 
the story, the narrative of Scripture, and then, of course, in Jesus Christ. He came and fulfilled the way for us to be saved and to really connect with what the Bible calls is our heavenly home. For now, in, in this side of eternity, we have assurance. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he's referring back to creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we live with this conundrum. The eternal, gracious goodness of God is right above our heads, reminding us on display, and yet we have these limits that include suffering, affliction, perplexion, persecution. In his book, called, it's a long title, it's called The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. What a great title for our theme. The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. It's written by an Indian author from the nation of India, Vishal Mangalwadi. He compares in this book all the major religions of the world. He, he, he grew up as a Hindu, but he was well-versed in all the religions of the world, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity in his studies in universities in India. He became very curious about the Christian religion after studying all these different sacred texts. When he read the Bible, he discovered something surprisingly unique about the Bible. No other religion, this, these are his words, my paraphrase, but no other religion has the Bible's clarity. In vivid contrast to other religious texts, the Bible clearly records the origin of things. We just talked about that in Genesis. God's involvement in human affairs through history. Details about how God created the heavens and the earth. Details of how he put order into the universe that science is still discovering, the order in the universe, the finely tuned universe that makes life possible. How he established covenants with mankind, marriage, community, law and order, for dignity for humanity. And even through the Bible's, this is one that perplexed Mengawali. He said, it perplexed me after I got through Genesis to start reading about all the crud <laughs> of the Old Testament, fighting and wars and adultery and failure and murder. And he said, I got bogged down in all of it. Why is it even here? And then he got to the New Testament. He really liked the New Testament. Jesus brought all this wonderful individual relationship with God. But he went back to the Old Testament and he, he, he finally came to the, this realization that even through the Bible's raw history of human failure, not 
candy coating over anything about human depravity and human failure and human weakness. God stayed faithful to his promises. His purposes went forward. Mangawadi became a Christian from reading the Bible. He found great hope in the clarity of the Bible's narrative, particularly the Genesis account, and then the New Testament story of Jesus. Let's read again just briefly this psalm that we opened with. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? (laughs) That you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and yet crowned him with glory and honor. How small we are, how, yet how precious we are. That's, that's what we have a hard time grasping. God knows us. He's crowned us with glory and honor. He, he knows us. He cares for us. And through Jesus Christ, he has made a promise to us and a way for us to be united with him forever. Someday Jesus is going to come again. How's he coming? In the sky. Our secularized scientific educational communities that are part of our contemporary culture tell us that human beings are nothing more than biological tissue. A fluke of millions of years evolved from primal goo, now an intelligent life form bound to a random blue planet. We are told that the human heart beats two billion times during an average of 75 years between birth and death and that the last beat of that heart ends our temporal animal existence. How do we argue for faith against an ocean of that kind of knowledge and culture in today's world? How do we argue for eternity, for the eternal soul of mankind and how important it is to be right with God? to guarantee the right place in eternity, because the Bible does speak of heaven and of hell. One of the most scary facts about the reality of being an eternal being is if you're not right with God, where, where will you live for eternity? That's scary to think about. That's dreadfully scary. We cannot prove that God exists. Can I prove that the heavens are nothing more than a stark reminder of our insignificance? No, I can't. God is unprovable in terms of the mind, but we have experienced him. We believe in him. We've laid, we as Christians have put our trust in him and found it to work and found it to be real, and yet it is not explainable. We see his glory in the heavens, even the ones we can observe. We look up in faith, humility, and gratitude for who God is and what he's done for us. I want to wrap this up now with something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. Here's what he said about the end of the age. He said much about the end of the age. When God wraps up this temporal existence 
and makes a new heavens and a new earth. Here's what Jesus, part of what Jesus said. It's recorded in Luke chapter 21. He said, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. <laughs> Even in trouble, we're going to be looking up. <laughs> if you're not a Christian today, let me, let me encourage you to open your heart to God. Let him, let him at least have a chance to make his case with you. I, I am amazed. I've been walking with God for nearly 50 years. I turned my life over to Jesus as a troubled teenager. I am amazed at how gentle God is. We all have sin that we got to deal with. And one of the things that happens when you turn your life over to God, he points things out that are standing in your way between you and him. It's usually not a complete list. God's still pointing stuff out to me. My wife helps me sometimes with that. See, I told you I was going to get you this morning. We've been married for 46 years, and she's my helpmeet, you know? She's a helper, suitable for me, that points it out to me every now and then, and I'm like, wish you would just close your mouth sometimes. But we've learned how to be gentle with each other, and that's a Christ-like quality that we have learned over the years. God is gentle to us, and he points out what we need to hear, even sometimes when we don't want to hear it. If there's things standing in your way between you and God, be willing to say, Lord, whatever that thing is, it cannot be nearly as good and as rich as what God has to offer for you. Listen to his gentle prodding. As a Christian, we do this. If you're a Christian that's struggling with something, let me encourage you, turn your heart. Let him, let him be the one that makes these rules and decisions for you. You'll never regret it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so glad and grateful for the reminders you put right here in this creation. We can see the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens. We get reminders all the time. Rainbows when it rains, we're reminded of your glory and of your promises, of your goodness towards mankind. Even in the struggles of life that sometimes get us down, we confess, Lord, we're perplexed sometimes. Or sometimes we go through difficulties. We, we get lost a little bit in all of it. We get wounded. Help us, I pray. Help us, Lord, to not lose sight of who you are. I pray for each person here today and anyone who has not yet opened their life to you, I just encourage you right now, just say, Jesus, just help me. And anything that's standing in my way right now, I, I maybe reluctantly, maybe cautiously, maybe a little fearfully, I, I let you have it. I give it to you. Take it. I welcome you to come and be a part of my life. Come into my life. 
this eternal reality. Let it be my experience. Lord, we all just long for that. Make us more like Jesus. The way we live in our marriages and in our homes and our communities and with our friends and in our workplace, help us be a reflection of your eternal character. I pray for that in Jesus' wonderful name. We're so grateful for all that you've done for us. Amen.